Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss the reign of our very first Abbasid Caliph, known by his intimidating title, Al-Saffah, or the Blood Ledger. Now that there's been a change in management, it's a good time for a tour of the Caliphate to get a better idea of what the new situation was like in its various provinces. We'll try to keep the spotlight on the Caliph, however, in episode 41, Al-Saffah. I'm still kind of psyched that we made it through the Umayyad dynasty. I'm not thrilled with the job I did, some bits were better than others, but overall it was more serviceable than what I thought I'd come up with. More than that, we have good reason to be optimistic that our upcoming coverage of the Abbasid dynasty will be even better. For one thing, we're in the same dynasty that the authors wrote their histories in. The events they're writing about aren't just closer to them in time, but they're also not as religiously or politically touchy as earlier material, and so they're prone to less distortion. Also, there's the fact that I have been getting better at this over time, something I hope you agree with. Okay, now that I'm done congratulating myself, let's put our latest caliph through our usual ringer, by taking a look at what things were like for him before he became the ruler of the Ummah. We've done this quite a few times now, and I'm sure you've noticed that these are the sorts of details the Arabs didn't really care to capture in their oral histories. Nobody talked about what children were up to or how they grew up, even if they were of noble descent. These just weren't the kinds of stories that circulated in society, so as with previous caliphs, there isn't much that I can tell you about young al-Saffah. He was probably born in Humayma, this remote location in the south of Jordan where the Abbasids had an estate, sometime between 715 and 720 AD. The Abbasids do come up a few times in Al-Tabari in contexts other than their da'wah activity. It seems they were welcome at the Umayyad court, at least for certain tribal rites or events. It's not an invitation they made much use of, and there's nothing worth relaying, just family stuff like weddings and such, affairs at which a few Abbasids were present. Al-Saffah personally doesn't come up at all, though. The Dawah's secrecy didn't help things, but it does give us some hints about his upbringing. The Dawah was definitely going strong by the time his father was in charge, and Al-Saffah grew up knowing his elder brother Ibrahim was fated to inherit his father's mission, and perhaps the mantle of leadership itself one day. Ibrahim was arrested in September 749, only months before Al-Saffah was named Caliph. This was all the time he had to prepare for the role, one he knew that generations of his family had been preparing to challenge for one day. Obviously, his name wasn't Al-Saffah, which translates as the butcher or the blood spiller. It was Abdullah. But you know, he really started something by picking his own title the day he was proclaimed caliph. All his successors did the same, and the custom was adopted by almost every other dynasty up to and including the Ottomans, making it all the way to the 20th century. I mentioned last time how he picked this name in the first speech he gave at the mosque in Kufa, and really it just came out of left field. The speech started out as you'd expect. 
He thanked God for his blessed lineage and for leading the Ummah back towards the light by returning its governance to the Prophet's clan. He called all the decades since the first fitna a time of Umayyad chaos, a dark era ended by the sacrifices of the martyrs who had given their lives to usher in this righteous age. Pretty standard stuff, right? Then in his last sentence he goes, quote, O people of Kufa, you're the ones we love and the ones who have loved us. Time has never changed your kindness, and you have patiently awaited our reign. For your generosity I will raise your pay one hundred dirhams. Now get ready, for I am the unrestrained bloodletter, the cataclysmic maverick. While his speech doesn't exactly lay out his agenda, it fits with the revolutionary time, and makes it pretty clear that this caliph was looking to deliver some corrective violence. Since he was trying to establish a new dynasty, Al-Saffah focused mainly on threats to Abbasid legitimacy, and those could only come from other Qurayshi clans. The only two that stood a chance were the Umayyads and the Hashemites, and it's clear from his opening speech that Al-Saffah intended to inflict unbridled savagery against the Umayyads, hoping to intimidate the rest of his Hashemite clan into conformity. For all his newfound power, attacking other Hashemites was simply not an option. After all, infighting was what brought the Umayyads down, a lesson still too fresh to forget. But let's begin with our tour of the Caliphate, and we'll see how the Umayyads fared when we get to the lands they inhabited. We'll go east to west, which means we'll start with Khurasan, the province from which the Abbasid revolution was launched. Abu Muslim was still in charge, and he kept the whole east in line for Al-Saffah. While there were still Arabs in Khurasan, the demographics were much more balanced since Qahtaba led the bulk of the Arabs west in his army. The only ones left were the ones who had grown up in Maru for generations now, or the Arab tribes that had settled by Nishapur in eastern Iran today. Those now lived together with the Mawadi in mixed cities and relative peace, a real breakthrough for the region. That's internally. Externally, Abu Muslim faced a formidable challenge from Tang China in 751. One year into Al-Saffah's reign, there was a major pitched battle between the Caliphate and the Chinese, and Abu Muslim's commander pulled off a great victory, though it had less to do with Arab military prowess and more with the fact that the mercenaries the Chinese had hired abandoned them and sided with the Caliphate and their Tibetan allies. This battle had some far-reaching consequences. For one, it allowed Islam to spread throughout Central Asia, as the Caliphate's claim to the region wouldn't be challenged from the east for a very long time to come. Even more importantly, some of the thousands of Chinese captured that day were master artisans, and from them, the Arabs learned the secrets of papermaking. It wasn't too long before the new technology had a deep impact on the Caliphate's intellectual development. In fact, it definitely contributed to the existence of these histories that we are exploring. Before paper, the transmission of knowledge was a lot more effort-intensive, having to rely on cumbersome scrolls and codexes made of parchment or papyrus. It would be centuries before the Europeans learned papermaking from the Arabs, also through prisoners of war. By then, the largest European archives had manuscripts numbering in the low thousands, while major Arab libraries boasted over half a million books. While paper was a real game-changer, it's a little early to gush about the technology, as it'll be a while before the impact was really felt. Progress during Al-Saffah's time was limited to the establishment of paper mills in Khurasan, and perhaps a few even closer to Iraq. Let's not get distracted. The main takeaway from the East 
is that Abu Muslim had the whole region under control and things were going smoothly. I guess we might as well say a few words about Sindh since we're in the neighborhood, though our sources treat it like an afterthought. Remember, Sindh is around modern-day Pakistan. A client of the Umayyads, Mansur ibn Jumhur al-Kalbi, had managed to take charge there, but the Abbasid army vanquished him in 753, and that was that. If the name Mansur al-Kalbi sounds familiar, then let me scratch that itch for you. He was that hyper-partisan Qahtani who had helped Yazid III overthrow his cousin Walid II. Yazid had assigned him to Khurasan, but Mansur failed to wrest the province away from Nasr bin Sayyar. Then he heard about Marwan II's rebellion and ran further west to distant Sindh, where his status as a client of the Umayyads was highly regarded, until the Abbasids came around at least. Okay, so let's continue our journey west now. Just like how Abu Muslim was in charge of Khurasan and the east, the caliph's brother Abu Jafar was responsible for Iraq. Now, I've already referred to Abu Jafar as the caliph's little brother before. Let me correct that by noting that he might have been his elder brother. We just don't have enough details on either of their childhoods, and they both share the same birth range of 715 to 720. I just figured that Al-Safah must have been older because he became caliph first, and that's how patriarchal societies usually function, but I guess I could be wrong. Anyway, the main problem the caliph's brother had to deal with was that Marwan's governor of Iraq, Yazid ibn Hubayra, was still fortified in the canton city of Wasit between Kufa and Basra. The disorganized and contradictory accounts about the warring between the two dynasties don't make it easy to determine whether Yazid's forces had joined Marwan in that final battle. Some say he withdrew to Wasit immediately following his first defeat against Qahtaba, others said he only went there after he and his men had joined Marwan's forces and lost to Abdullah bin Adi at the river Zab. It's more likely that he never joined Marwan because Yazid had between 10 and 20,000 men and enough provisions to keep them fed for literal years. I don't see how he could have managed taking all that back to Wasit after the ultimate showdown at Zab, and if he had, wouldn't the caliph have been there? Yazid and his men were besieged for 11 months, but the Abbasids knew that they had to negotiate an end to the standoff as an assault on the well-guarded city was out of the question. In return for disbanding his forces, all Yazid was asking for were assurances of safety for him and his commanders, and the sources make it clear that he felt he had the upper hand. During these negotiations, he would patrol the walls of Wasit with thousands of troops as a show of confidence. Ultimately, a deal was struck, and Yazid and his men were all promised safety. He and his commanders were then assassinated weeks or maybe just days later, and most histories are quick to point the finger of blame at Abu Muslim. I don't know what the governor of Khurasan had to do with any of this, but the story goes that he was ambitious and distrustful, and he wrote to Al-Saffah about how he ought to show the servants of the Umayyads no mercy lest they help their masters retake the throne. Stuff that filled the caliph with paranoia. I don't really buy it. I think it's a deflection so that the Abbasids don't look like oathbreakers. If anyone was going to be accused of duplicity, who better than the foreigner, Abu Muslim? This isn't a one-off thing either, and we'll find other betrayals blamed on Abu Muslim as we go along, so it's a theme we'll have to return to later. In any case, it was Al-Saffah who gave the orders, and the buck had to stop there as far as I'm concerned. 
Besides Wasit, Al-Safah's brother and governor of Iraq, Abu Ja'far, had other problems in Iraq to deal with, like the Adnani areas in the north, Mosul, Jazeera, places like that. He didn't personally attend to matters there, but assigned lieutenants to clear those lands of insurgents. As you can imagine, these were filled with Umayyad loyalists, and Abu Ja'far's commanders even found members of the Umayyad clan in some places. It took many months, but eventually, rebellious movements were quelled as far north as Armenia, and the entire region became Abu Ja'far's responsibility. He kept things as tightly buttoned up there as Abu Muslim had in Khurasan. Further west were the true Umayyad heartlands of Syria, Jordan, and Palestine. The man put in charge of these was the caliph's uncle, Abdullah bin Ali. As commander of the Abbasid troops at the fateful Battle of the Zab, he was clearly the best choice for such a martial assignment. Out of all of Al-Safah's governors, Abdullah bin Ali was the one who came across the most Umayyads, making that unrestrained bloodletting the caliph had promised part of his responsibilities. I told a story last time, somewhat badly I might add, about how Al-Safah was thought to have earned his name by rounding up the Umayyads and killing them at a banquet. Well, the misattribution probably stemmed from something Abdullah ibn Ali did in Palestine early in 750, where he indeed invited a host of Umayyads to a meal that proved to be their last. He made them listen to a poet condemning their dynasty for its godlessness, then had them all crushed to death beneath some fancy rugs. Finally, we're told he feasted atop the stained carpets as some more poets praised the justice that had been meted out. There are many other stories about Abdullah bin Ali killing Umayyads, but what's the point of telling them all? He entered Damascus in April 750, Ramadan, and everyone was terrified until a part of town was designated as a safe zone and the entire city rushed there, so there was virtually no resistance from the Umayyad capital. He only insisted on putting five men to death, all of whom I think were Umayyads. The story of Marwan II's end has him racing across these provinces with Abdullah bin Ali in close pursuit, losing clansmen and supporters to the Abbasid's forces at every turn. While Marwan did eventually escape west to Egypt, other relatives of the caliph hunted him down there before too long. He would not have stood a better chance even if he had made it further west to Ifriqiya, modern-day Tunis. A local power broker there, a member of the illustrious Fihri clan attempted to agitate against the Abbasids, but in this hasty initiative his brother recognized an opportunity to usurp his throne. He took pledges of support for al-Safah, deposed his brother, and in order to get on the Abbasid caliph's good side, he forwarded the rebellious Fihri along with all the region's Umayyads to Kufa, where they were all promptly put to death. That's as far west as the caliphate went at the time the Maghrib and Andalusia having been lost during the Great Berber Rebellion. The Caliph could rest easy knowing that his three heavy hitters, Abu Muslim, his brother Abu Ja'far, and his uncle Abdullah ibn Adi, had his lands and people locked down for him. All he had to worry about was maintaining his clan's legitimacy, and the gratuitous spilling of Umayyad blood really went a long way. Few Umayyads survived their clan's systematic slaughter. A grandson of Omar II was spared after a pious uncle of the caliph said he'd vouch for him, and other than that I came across one distant, distant cousin of an Umayyad nobody who was allowed to live in the east after some tribal elders from the region petitioned the caliph to let them keep him, almost like a Qurayshi pet. One Umayyad who almost made it was Sulaiman ibn Hisham, 
He had taken refuge with the Karajite Dahak after his Qahtani rebellion against Marwan II had failed, and he managed to evade Marwan's governor of the province while the Abbasid revolution made its way west. Suleiman may have hoped that his pro-Qahtani credentials would vouch for him, and he pledged to Al-Saffah enthusiastically. He and his family were given safety and even a place at the new caliph's court, a very esteemed position by any means. Then it all came crashing down one day, when an old friend and tutor of the caliph waltzed into court and delivered a fiery poem reminding Al-Saffah of all the Hashemite suffering the Umayyads had wrought. Suleiman's sons objected, but it was too late. Al-Saffah gestured and the whole lot were taken out back and, well, dealt with. The story definitely has some suspicious elements, and anyway there's never a good reason to just believe an entire account wholesale, but I guess two things are being emphasized here. One is that any living Umayyad was understood to pose a threat to the new Abbasid order, and the other is that the more Umayyad blood the caliph spilt, the more he could claim the mantle of Hashemite legitimacy. This is the other, more complicated half of our discussion, the more sensitive part of Al-Saffah's mission, ensuring his house was accepted as representing the Prophet's clan. I don't want to be redundant, but it's important to make sure that everyone understands this problem, so I'm going to go into some details we've already mentioned several times before. Please bear with me. The Prophet Muhammad was of the Hashemite clan, named after his great-grandfather Hashem, not everyone related to Hashim was a Hashemite. Like all Arabian tribes, the various clans of Quraysh all intermarried, and so there was no strict separation between them. For example, Umayyah, for whom the Umayyah tribe is named, was Hashim's nephew, but that didn't mean much as far as tribal lineage went. An Arab belonged to the same clan as his father, and whenever someone earned great fame, his descendants would use his name in their patronymics to boast of their relation to him starting a new clan. Now this wasn't a hard and fast rule, it was a customary process which took time to reflect changes and accomplishments, but it worked well enough for the Arabs. So here's where things get a little tricky. Technically, any Qurayshi who could trace a line of paternity to Hashim was a Hashemite, but with the advent of Islam, the Prophet became the clan's MVP, their most valuable patriarch. Muhammad had no surviving sons, but his biological daughter, Fatima, married his Hashemite nephew, Ali bin Abi Talib, whom he had raised since young childhood, and the pair gave the Prophet grandkids he was super close to, and so on. While many Arabs believed in this family's sanctity, nobody started a new clan name or anything, and so for over a century, between the birth of Islam and the triumph of the Da'wah, the word Hashemite was only ever used to refer to Adi and Fatima's family, the one descended from the Prophet, understood to be the true leader of the Hashemite clan. By insisting that they represented the Hashemite clan, the Abbasids were leaning on a technicality. I mean, yes, of course they were Hashemites. Nobody would contest that. It's not like they were expected to pick a different clan name. But calling themselves that, in effect, reversed what the word had come to mean. This wasn't something they were unaware of. In fact, they exploited it to the fullest during the Dawah's secret phase. The Abbasids had instructed their preachers to maintain a strategic vagueness when telling folks that they were calling for the return of the Prophet's clan to power. This was a tactic to maximize the support they could hope to garner 
from the various pro-Hashemite communities. Basically, most of the Khurasaniya who had come out to fight in the Abbasid armies did so thinking they were calling for the installation of the Prophet's descendants, not some distant cousins. Anyway, I hope that explains why Al-Saffah had to present his family as quintessentially Hashemite, yet at the same time expect to be challenged on this claim of representation. He abolished the cursing of the Hashemites at mosques and restored their name to honor across the caliphate. He paid homage to the justice of Ali bin Abi Talib's struggle, but did not go beyond expressing admiration or lamenting his loss. Much of the poetry we have mentioned in passing so far used the tragic struggle of Ali and his children as one of its major themes, often to justify the slaughter of Umayyads. Al-Saffah went out of his way to honor his clan, but he kept all the positions of power in the hands of his Abbasid kin. Clearly, the caliph had to walk a tightrope on this matter. He had to maintain that the Abbasid revolution was a Hashemite one, while not making it seem logical that he should therefore cede authority to the house of his distant cousins, the descendants of Ali and Fatima. This was a tricky balance to strike, and we don't really find much to shed light on any challenges from within the Hashemite clan. There are a couple stories which get close, but they don't really go anywhere. In the first, an uncle of Al-Saffah praises the new caliph and his house before an audience full of Hashemites as everyone nods in approval. In the second, Hashemite descendants of Ali's son Al-Hasan go to visit the caliph, and one of them barely begins to hint at how his family was now prepared to take on the responsibility of leadership before he gets shushed and told to never speak of such a thing again. So I don't really know. Both stories seem unlikely, and they go in very different directions. Ultimately, there was no blood spilled, so the other Hashemites couldn't have pressed their luck against Al-Saffah. To me, it seems like the name Al-Saffah was chosen for their benefit, to dissuade them from opposing the Abbasids. Maybe it's the effect of having nothing to go on but those two accounts, but I weirdly feel like the truth is exactly in between that the descendants of Ali were both pleased that their kin had unseated the Umayyads, but also felt like their cause had been unjustly abused, that they were being denied their legacy. There is no evidence that they pushed their claim, however, although it doesn't hurt to keep in mind that the official Abbasid narrative would have good reason to disregard any such material. Al-Saffah ruled his caliphate from Iraq. He started off in Kufa, then he moved to Hira, which had once served as the capital of the Lahmid confederacy. I think the main reason was plague. There was a lot of plague at the time. Actually, ever since late in Hisham's term, I've noticed a lot more mentions of pandemics sweeping the Ummah. Then after Hira, he moved again, this time establishing a new capital in Anbar, also in Iraq, and I think also because of plague. This shift of official power to Iraq already had great significance, and would go on to really set the Abbasid Caliphate apart from its predecessor. Syria was probably not a safe choice at the start, but every year the Caliph neglected to relocate to the Caliphate's traditional capital of Damascus, the Syrian tribes realized more fully how far they had fallen from grace. I lumped all Syrian rebellions into one pile while touring the Caliphate, but there were some differences between them. At one point, an Umayyad managed to unite Syria's Qahtani and Adnani tribes together in a bid to rebuff the Abbasids. While it didn't go anywhere, 
It's interesting to see the two coalitions working together instead of feuding. Now that they saw the seat of power shift to Iraq, they had every reason to jointly champion a local Qurayshi. But it was already way too late. I also neglected to mention some Karajite rebellions across the fringes of the Caliphate, especially in the peninsula, but I hope you'll forgive the omission, as all these were dealt with without having any immediate consequences for our narrative. I think we've covered plenty for our first Abbasid episode, and this is a good place to stop. Things stabilized remarkably well in short order. I mean, there was a revolution, people. I guess the chaos preceding it wasn't better in any way, and despite the precariousness of their legitimacy, the Abbasids were far more in control of the Ummah than the Umayyads were after the Third Fitna. Next time, we'll exhaust all we know about Al-Saffah and get into his succession plans and how they worked out. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.